For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks, one of the associate pastors. And we're going into week four of our series on character. And uh, just to do a quick review for those of you who maybe haven't been around, uh, three weeks ago we talked about why character is important. And one of the main reasons we saw is that we need to develop godly character because as we develop our character in this lifetime, what we're doing is preparing for life in the next lifetime. Super important. Godly character is really important. And then in week two, I talked about the fact that uh, godly character, if you want to become a person of godly character, it's going to require a lot of hard work and perseverance. And then last week I was gone and Pastor Ray uh, talked about our first individual character trait. He talked about humility, a very important uh, trait. And today we're going to talk about another individual character trait. Very, very important. Very, very, very difficult. But before I start on that, I'm going to rabbit trail before we even get started, okay? I want to just rabbit trail for a few minutes. And I want to go back to two weeks ago and I want to pick up on a thread that I talked about two weeks ago. And that was this whole thread of, of becoming a person of character is going to require hard work and perseverance. And I know when I said that, for some people in evangelical circles and Christian circles in North America, that comes as a bit of a surprise because there's a, a, quite a push in some places, in some Christian places and churches and theology, where if it's of the Spirit, it's automatic. If it's of Jesus, you don't have to try. It's just going to happen. And what we looked at in that message was, when it comes to godly character, God is going to have to work in me, and I'm going to have to work at it. All right? Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, you're going, okay, you talked about this two weeks ago, and why are you bringing it up again? And I want to bring it up again because I want to emphasize something here, and that is this. The either-or situation in the Christian church in North America is really hurting churches. And what's happened is, in the information age with the internet and all sorts of stuff, we have access to all kinds of speakers and ministry. I mean, people are listening to, to different preachers and ministries all throughout the week, and it's great. It's, it's giving us more of an understanding of the Bible, and we're, we're hearing from different people, and we're learning new things, and it's really good. What is the problem is that many of these speakers from around the world, South America and Africa and Australia and the States and the West Coast, uh, many of these speakers and ministries are specialists. Now, specialists can be really wonderful for the church because they'll take one particular truth and they'll just mine it really, really deep and we can all enjoy that truth. And it's really awesome. But what starts to happen in some cases is some specialists, what they tend to do is they'll take their area of truth and preach it as if it's the only one to the exclusion of the others. So you've got your prayer specialist. For them, the only thing that matters in life is prayer. If you have a problem in your life, just pray. Don't worry about character. Don't worry about your finances. Don't worry about any of those things. Walking no, just pray. That'll solve all your problems. And you've got your healing miracle people. Their answer to everything is healings and miracles. They won't help you one cent with how do you deal with suffering, but healings and miracles, that's the whole thing. You've got your sovereignty of God people. And you've got this people and these people, identity in Christ people, and everybody has kind of their camp, and it creates camps and divisions within the church. And so you've got certain people in the churches, and they're listening to these people, and they say, oh, these messages are so good, and they're using scripture, and they are using scripture. But what they're using this camp is they're saying, well, this group of passages over here cancels out this camp's passages over here, and what we're saying, and what I'm trying to emphasize in this series and throughout is, we cannot use one group of scripture passages to cancel out another bunch. If it's in the Bible, it's all there, and that's why we have to embrace the both and in some cases. So for example, when it comes to character, we've got these two different camps. We've got the identity in Christ people. Awesome. They, and yes, we've got, and you know, the more you know who you are in Jesus, it's going to change your behavior. And then we've got this other camp where it's like the holiness people, and they're saying, don't worry about your identity in Christ. Focus on your behavior, and then you can know Jesus. You've got to get holiness. And both sides, you listen to messages from this camp. Oh, convicting. Fear of the Lord comes on you. Oh, so good. And you listen to messages from this camp. Oh, so good, identity in Christ. I feel so loved. I'm, yes, that's who I am, and it helps me, all this sort of stuff. And we just have, what we have to be careful of is when we're listening to these great messages that we're not using one to say, now I don't listen to those ones. It's the both end. Really important. They're both. Just because one is good doesn't mean it cancels out the other. We need them both. We need identity in Christ. We need to focus on our behavior. And I'll never forget, a few years ago, I was listening to an amazing message by an amazing guy. Really great guy, preaching in a great spirit, using lots of scripture passages. Great message. And he's talking about how identity in Christ, life-changing message. The whole message, like 99.9% of it, was absolutely amazing. Totally life-changing. When you know who you are in Jesus, it's going to change how you behave. Yes. 
But there was one little bone in there that I didn't notice at the time. It didn't pop up for me until some years later. And I was meditating on Scripture. And, and the bone was this. There was this thrust in his message that never focus on behavior. Just focus on Jesus' behavior will take care of itself. And then I'll never forget, over time as I was studying the Scriptures, I began to think to myself, you know, it's interesting that there are hundreds of verses in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, about behavior. I just made a short little list before this message in the New Testament alone. Don't steal, don't lie. Submit to authorities. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Give generously. Take care of orphans and widows. Don't cause a brother to stumble. Don't practice sexual immorality. Don't gossip. Don't use coarse language. Don't tell obscene jokes, etc., etc., etc. Hundreds of verses about behavior. And one day I thought to myself, you know, every time I read one of these verses about behavior, I have to focus on my behavior. And so what I saw was, okay, this message on identity was wonderful, but I've got to spit out the bone that identity in Christ trumps working on your behavior. And so if anyone asks you, what does self and believe about character, or what does Chris believe, or if they ask me, you know, how do you change your character? Is it by focusing on Jesus, or is it by focusing on your behavior? And the answer is yes. It's both. It's like the chicken and the egg, okay? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, you can't answer that question. You need a chicken to get an egg, you need an egg to get a chicken. It's a circle, okay? It's a vicious circle. They reproduce pretty fast, I'm told. So, but anyway, so here you get chicken, egg, chicken, egg, chicken, egg. It's the same with character development, okay? Character development, here are some of the things you need. You need intimacy with Jesus, you need to know your identity, who you are in Jesus, and you need to work on your behavior, And these three things aren't mutually exclusive. They build off each other in a circle. You can't talk about which one gives which one. Yes, when I know who I am in Christ, all wonderful truth, it makes behaving right easier, almost automatic. And yes, there are times when I have to work on my behavior because when I change my behavior, it helps me know who I am in Christ. It's a two-way street. So it's the both and. And so in this message series, when I'm talking about character, I'm hammering it from the side of work at it. But that does not mean that I'm canceling out the truth of who you are in Christ and you have to have intimacy with Jesus. You won't, the working at it won't work apart from you also doing these things. My problem is that I only have one mouth and I can only speak one message series at a time, okay? So don't hear me saying it's just work, 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 work on your behavior. No, it's work on your behavior and pursue Jesus. Yes? Is that good? Are you with? Hands up in the air if I can move on. Okay. Let's talk about today's character trait. I'm going to talk, like I said before, I need to make a confession up front. You know, there's some messages when I preach and I go home and the dawn will say to me, she'll say, that's my wife, those of you who don't know, but she'll say to me, you know what? You are actually pretty good at that one. And I'll go, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then there's other messages I preach and I go home and she says, you know, you're, you're preaching your way into that one. And this is one of those, okay? This is one of those where I'm not preaching at you guys with this message This is one, this I think is out of all the character traits, one of the hardest to master. It's certainly one that I have not mastered yet, but I want to. It's also one of the most wonderful. Up front, it's one of the hardest. On the back end, it's one of the most wonderful. And it's one of the ones that is most dear to God's heart. I know that for two reasons, because Jesus modeled it for us. And second of all, because it's all over scripture. All right, let me read you a verse and we're going to pray and get on with this. Romans 12, 17 says this, and we're going to talk about how do you deal with unfair treatment. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Repay no one evil for evil. I want you to read that with me, okay? Here we go. One, two, three. Repay no one evil for evil. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a very difficult truth to live. And yet, Lord, this is your calling on our life. I pray, Jesus, that you would protect this place here today. Help us to concentrate. Open up our hearts to receive truth from you, Jesus, to see why this is wonderful. And to have a desire to live this, God, I pray that you would give us the strength to live, us, live this for the rest of our lives. In your name I pray, amen. How many of you know that when God wants to emphasize something, he repeats himself over and over again? There's not any exclamation points in scripture, but that he repeats himself. And 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says this, see that no one ever anywhere, no caveats, I love how Paul preaches. You know, I'm going to give you some caveat circumstance type things later in this message. I wonder if Paul would have preached in today's Southland or today's culture, he would have had a lot of you mad at him, okay? Because he doesn't put caveats in there. He just says, no one ever, in any circumstance, no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Someone goes, but, 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 
Paul, you don't understand. What about this? No, no. No one ever repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to everyone. 1 Peter 3.9 says this. Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You know, there is nothing like this ethic anywhere else in the world. You look at the world's major religions. You look at the, the uh, religion of Islam. Islam allows for honor killings and revenge killings and even killing in the, in the name of advancing Allah's name, jihad. You look at Judaism. Judaism, you have eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And then in Christianity, you have repay no one evil for evil. That means that when you take on Christ's name, when you invite him into your heart, you are signing up for a life of when you are slandered, you will not slander back. When you are gossiped about, you will not gossip back. When you are stolen from, abused and taken advantage of, you will not do those things back. When you are disrespected and humiliated, you will not do those back. You will repay no one ever, anyone, anywhere, evil for evil. And this is not just some obscure command. Some people might say, well, you know, there's hundreds of commands for Christians, and this is just one of them out of many. This actually goes right to the core. This is central. Repaying no one evil for evil is part of one of the most important parts of what it means to be a Christian. Peter actually says here, he says, for to this you were called. Again, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how many people, as a pastor, many people often come to me, they're like, Chris, uh, what's my calling in life? And what they really mean, and this isn't bad, but what they really mean is, I want God to be calling me to something more glamorous. Like, there's got to be something bigger for me than just what I'm doing in my life. That's what we mean. We want something bigger, more important. And we talked about a couple weeks ago how don't worry about your calling, worry about your character. What we see here in this verse that what one of the big callings on your life is. Your calling as a Christian, you became a Christian, you got a calling at that moment. You got a calling to suffer unfair treatment and repay no one evil for evil. Every single Christian has that calling. It's your primary calling. Any callings you get outside of scripture are subservient to this one. This one's more important. We are called to suffer unjust treatment and to repay no one evil for evil. Look at 1 Peter 2, 19 to 23. For this is a gracious thing. Boy, these Bible writers are weird people. (laughs) This is a gracious thing. When? Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So you suffer because you do bad things. No credit to you, okay? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, here it is again, for to this you have been called. What's surprising is not Christians suffering unjust treatment. What's surprising is that we Christians are surprised when we face unjust treatment. So often the response I get, people will phone me, uh, we get phone calls often people who are in in a tough marriage, bad marriage situation. And they'll phone me and they'll, or Tim or Stefan or Donovan or someone, and they'll be talking to us and, oh, she doesn't love me. He doesn't love me. I don't have any love. We're not happy. Blah, 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 blah. They'll go on this whole long rant and at the end of it we'll say, and you need to stay in your marriage. And they'll go, what? Why would God want me to suffer like that? Why would God want me not to be happy? And the thing that we have to get into our brains is the fact that God is more concerned with our character than with our happiness. Amen. And, and so, and it's not just with bad marriages, it's all kinds of things. I just made a list. It's not just bad marriages, okay? There's lots of things. I made a list of stories I have personally heard, people in this church. I had not hearsay stories. I personally talked to these people, and there are people in our church, of things in the past year, people in this church, unjust treatment, okay? I have talked to people who have been unjustly charged thousands of dollars. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars in a couple of examples, by the government or by another business, I have talked to people who owned a business, a small business, and, and had expensive equipment repeatedly stolen from them by employees. Okay? I've talked to people who were in business partnerships, and their business partner took advantage of them to the tune of thousands of dollars. In fact, I talked to one guy just a few weeks ago. He was in my office. He told me about how him and another guy went to start a business, and with this, with this new idea, this cool idea, his business partner, secretly behind his back, went and patented the idea, ran off and did the business on his own. Okay? 
I've talked to people who uh, their boss went out of their way to persecute them and make life difficult for them. Okay? Now, peop- what the, pro- the thing I'm surprised at is not that this is happening to us because Peter said, to this you were called. What's surprising is the reaction of many of us, including myself so often, is this happens to us and this is what we do. Oh, poor me. Why me? Why would God let this happen to me? And Peter says, the only reason we're surprised, there's two reasons why. Uh, First is bad theology out there in the church. And second is, we're just not reading our Bibles. Because this is what Peter said. I'm going to give you a tour of 1 Peter today, because this is a big topic for Peter. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. Beloved, if we read our Bibles, we're not going to be surprised, but that we're getting treated unfairly and unjustly and reviled and slandered. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you are a Christian, this, should, this is normal. God is testing your character. Your character really matters to Him. This is what Jesus went through when He lived here on earth. So do not be surprised when people take advantage of you and steal from you and do all of those sorts of things to you. In fact, He says, but rejoice. Not only should we not be surprised, We should be happy. Why? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Why do we rejoice? Two reasons. First is, when we suffer unjust treatment, when people slander us and gossip about us and take advantage of us and lie about us and accuse us of things that we have not done, when that happens to us, we share in Christ's sufferings because He also went through unjust treatment. See, there is, a, there is an intimacy with Christ that you can only have when you walk in unjust treatment, when you are treated unfairly. There's an intimacy that comes when you share in His sufferings that you can't get unless you're treated unjustly. And this intimacy with Christ, this sharing in His suffering, is so wonderful that Peter says, you can be happy when you're treated unfairly because you can, you can now attain to that kind of intimacy. And not only can you grow in intimacy with Jesus, you can grow in character because he's, God is testing you. And your character is so important and, and your intimacy with Jesus is so wonderful that unfair circumstances go from being, oh, why me, to sweet, lucky. Look, what Peter, look at what he says here. Some of you, you're still not there yet. I'm not either, but I'm preaching it, right? So we're going to get there. Let's look at another passage in 1 Peter, earlier in the chapter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter says, get yourselves mentally ready. If you are a Christian, the moment you became a Christian, one of the first things you need to do is get yourself mentally ready. Unjust treatment is coming down the road for you. Unfair treatment, being lied about and accused and slandered and reviled and all sorts of things, it's coming down the road. Arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Why? Because Christ suffered. Right now, there is this crazy theology going around that I hear sometimes in the church, in the West in particular. There's this theology that goes around and it goes like this. Because Christ suffered, you and I never have to suffer anymore. Friends, that is exactly opposite of the Bible. If we would read our Bibles, we would see through this teaching. Because Peter says, since Christ suffered, because Christ suffered, arm yourself to suffer. Not because Christ suffered, I don't have to suffer. Because Christ suffered, I will suffer too. You know, a, a few months ago, I heard just an atrocious thing. I heard there was a conference in the southern states, a bunch of famous speakers, okay? Big name guys. They get together. They do this convention. At the end of the convention, they have everyone at the convention sign cards, covenants, that they will not accept suffering for one year. I go, are you kidding me? The Bible says, arm yourselves mentally, get ready to suffer. And these charlatans are going around telling people to sign covenants that they won't expect suffering, that they won't accept it. What is that? It's ridiculous is what it is. Here's why it's important to arm yourself. Let me tell you why it's important to get yourself mentally ready to suffer. Here's why. When you are surprised by unjust treatment, you will be easily swept away by bitterness and resentment. When your response to unjust treatment is, I can't believe they said that to me. I can't believe they passed me over for that promotion. I was the next in line. I can't believe that person stole from me. He's a Christian. And then we go, oh, poor me. And the bitterness and the anger and resentment rises up inside of us. Because we weren't ready for it. Oh, poor me. And we're swept away by bitterness and resentment. And instead of rising above unfair treatment, we are buried by unfair treatment. Brothers and sisters, unfair treatment is going to happen to you because you were called to that. 
We need to arm ourselves. There's a different mentality that we need to arm ourselves with. This is the mentality. My Lord and Savior, whom I love, Jesus Christ, He is my Master. If He had to suffer unfair treatment, why shouldn't I? You say, show me that in the Bible. Good, okay, let's, let's see that. <laughs> Matthew 10, 24, 25, look what Jesus says. A disciple is not above his teacher. Are we above Jesus? No, that, it's no, for those of you who don't. Okay, now you know. Okay? A disciple is not above his teacher. We're not above Jesus, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, so he's talking about himself. He's the master of the house. They were calling him a devil. They were maligning Jesus' name. They were accusing him and lying about him. Now look what he says. If they accused me, how much more will they malign, revile, slander, accuse, put it whatever, that's what malign means. How much more will they malign those of his household? That is us. If you are a Christian, there's a, because of bad theology, there are Christians that go around now and they think they're too good for suffering. They think, I'm above suffering. I'm, I'm a king's kid. I don't need to suffer. I have a right not to suffer. And the Bible is exactly the opposite. Jesus said, I had to suffer. I'm the master. Don't consider yourself above that. You are not too good to suffer. If I suffered, so will you. Boy, what a good message. This is like very happy stuff. Great. What happens when we get this mentality? I want to show you something amazing. Let's go back to 1 Peter. Let me show you. 1 Peter, great book on this. What happens? There is something amazing that will happen in you and it will happen in me. When you get this mentality that Jesus had to suffer, why shouldn't I? When you get this mentality, something amazing is going to happen in your life. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ, we're back at that verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For, why? Here it is. For, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. When you come to the place where you are mentally armed, that people can take advantage of you, they can, they can uh, steal from you, they can revile you, they can slander you, and why shouldn't they? Because they did it to Jesus and I love him. When you get to that place, you are actually ready at a place where you are ready to stop sinning entirely. And the reason is because when you are at that place where you are ready to lay down your rights... At that moment, your flesh has been completely submitted to the Spirit of God. And now you are ready to stop sinning in any area of your life. But here's the thing. In our culture, we are conditioned exactly the opposite. And we, for many of us, we never lose it. We ask Jesus into our hearts, but we don't lose the culture's conditioning. Here's how we're conditioned. To fight for our rights. To get, our, to get what's coming to us. To get what we deserve. To get paid back to be paid in full, to have justice done on our behalf. We are constantly fighting for our rights. And you know, brothers and sisters, as long as we fight for our rights, forgot what I was going to say. We're going to keep sinning. It's the 11 o'clock service. Four times through, you start getting muddled, okay? As long as we're fighting for our rights, the flesh is in control, not the spirit, and you will keep sinning in many different areas of your life. But when you come to the point where you are ready to fully submit to Jesus, he suffered and I will suffer just like he did. I'm not above that. When you are armed with that mentality, you're ready to stop sinning. Amazing. So let me give you four keys to handling unfair treatment. We've already looked at the first one. How do you handle unfair treatment? First of all, expect it. Just arm yourself for it. Be ready. One of the keys to to walking with Jesus. There's a second thing though, and obviously even when you're armed for it, it's still going to you know, take you by surprise from time to time. People, you thought, it shouldn't have been them that did that to me. It shouldn't have been them. It's going to take you by surprise. So sometimes when you are surprised, you just have to remember rule number two, which is never, ever repay anyone evil for evil. It's going to be super hard. In the moment, it is super, super hard. But in the moment, you never repay anyone evil for evil. It's, it's simple. It's not easy. Like I said, it's hard to do, but it's simple. That's your, just remember that rule. I am being hurt right now. I'm being slandered. I'm being taken advantage of. But I will not repay evil for evil. Our example is Christ. Again, back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Look at why did he suffer for us? Leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You know, a lot of times when we read the crucifixion story, we think, that was Jesus. Totally different. That doesn't apply to my life. He had to go to the cross. I don't have to go to the cross. They're totally ignoring the fact that he told us throughout the Gospels, pick up your cross and follow me. 
But here's the thing. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He did do that. But he also went the cross to show us the way we should live, to be an example. When you read the story of the cross and how people accused Jesus and lied to him, lied about him and, and slandered him and reviled him and eventually tortured him and killed him, when we read that, we need to realize it's an example. That's how we are to live our lives here now. He lived it as an example. And how did he live it? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So we're supposed to do that. He did it at the cross. We need to do it at work every day. He did it at the cross. We need to do it in our families and our marriages every day. It's his example. We're following him. When he suffered at the cross, he did not threaten. He didn't threaten. We're not to do it in our business. We're not to do it at work. We're not to do it in our family. He suffered and did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. From this passage, we see two basic kinds of unjust treatment that that we can face. And one is unjust words. That's reviling. And this is probably the more common one. We all have people in our lives who, you know, maybe it's a family member, an in-law, a co-worker, a boss. They put us down from time to time. They humiliate us. They disrespect us. They lie about us. When that happens, never return reviling for reviling, just like Jesus did. You don't defend yourself. And then there's also unjust uh, actions. Now, unjust actions is a bit more serious than unjust words, isn't it? Words is one thing. Actions is another. People steal from you, take advantage of you, threaten you, these sorts of things. But what did Jesus do when he suffered unjust actions? He did not threaten. But again, this goes against everything, how we're brought up. We are brought up. Get the legal system involved. Threaten to sue. Threaten to get your connections. Threaten, you know, violence. Threaten whatever it is. We threaten different things. Jesus says, no, unjust words, you don't respond. Unjust actions, you don't threaten. Now, I want to just give you, I want to just, I want to talk about wisdom here for a moment. Just because... You never repay. You never, ever, ever. There's no, there's no exceptions. You never repay evil for evil. But that doesn't mean there isn't a time for Christians to sometimes fight, okay? And I just have to give this little clip. Because last night I had a guy get mad at me after the 5 o'clock. He's like, well, what if a guy comes and attacks my wife? Okay? And I said, this message, Jesus said, turn the other cheek when someone hits you, not turn your wife's cheek. Amen? Okay? I'm talking about grievances to you. So for some of you who are lacking a little bit of common sense, let me give you common sense here with this message, all right? Let me tell you three times when you're allowed to fight. First of all, we're allowed to fight unjust laws. Amen. I know of people right now dealing with the court systems and stuff because of unjust laws that keep uh, orphans and stuff uh, in different places in the world from being brought into caring families. Those are unjust laws, and they're fighting against them. That's a good use of the court system. I remember when Trinity Western University out west there has, has fought on, uh, against unjust laws here in Canada, various things that would force Christian organizations to hire people who didn't live Christian morals and those sorts of things. Okay? I think of William Wilberforce who spent his whole life fighting against slavery in Britain. Amen! We love that. We have a heritage of that in, in Christianity. Fighting against unjust laws. You are allowed to fight against unjust laws. But you're not allowed to take a brother or sister to court just because of a personal grievance. And that's in 1 Corinthians. If I have time, I'll get there yet at the end of this message. Okay? We don't return evil for evil, but we can stick up, we can fight against injustice in the land, right? Second thing, when you're allowed to fight, when it's okay to fight, defending the weak, the helpless, and those under your care. Okay? If you see a bunch of teenagers attacking, you know, a helpless elderly person or a handicapped person or something like that, you know what you do? You step in and you kick some butt. Okay? (laughs) I mean that. Okay? That is... This is wisdom. I'm giving you wisdom. This message is about personal grievances, evils to you. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we stand up for the weak and the helpless, okay? If someone comes after your wife, you pick up a lead pipe and say, over my dead body, you can quote me. You tell them that. If this happens to you in Winnipeg, you say, my pastor told me to tell you over my dead body. And then, for someone like me, I'm not very gifted in fighting. It might be over my dead body, but whatever, okay? All right? Third, when it's okay to fight, nations may defend themselves and governments may punish criminals. Romans 13, I wish I had time to go there. God has given governments the sword to protect their citizens. Thank God in World War II and and different wars like that throughout history, thank God for men like Winston Churchill and the allies who stood up to Adolf Hitler and that sort of stuff, okay? When I'm talking about repaying no one evil for evil, we're talking personal grievances and attacks like that. We're not talking about not sticking up for the helpless and the defenseless, all right? 
And a fourth thing I want to say here is there is also a time to, to get out of a situation. That's not the same as repaying evil for evil. You might be in an abusive marriage. You need to, you need to leave. I'm not saying you need to divorce, not necessarily, but you need to get out of the house. Yes, good. Yep, that's totally fine. That's great. Jesus even had times they tried to kill him before his time. They tried to throw him off of a cliff in the Gospels there, and it wasn't his time. He said, no, I'm not dying yet. And he just, it says he went invisible and walked through their midst, okay? You can get out, okay, of abusive situations, bad situations, all right? So now I've given you a bit of wisdom. Now you can accept the rest of what I'm saying. Now let's go back to repay no one evil for evil. Some of you are saying, if I never repay anyone evil for evil, Chris, that's not workable in this world. How am I going to protect myself, my business, my, my, you know, my assets, my money, whatever it is, my name, my reputation? Well, if you think that's insane, I'm not done yet, it gets worse. I'm a caring pastor, okay? <laughs> let's go back to Romans. There's a third thing here. Not only do we, not need to, do we need to repay no one evil for evil, we actually need to bless those who curse us. Romans says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Jesus doesn't just want you not to do bad things back. He wants you to go one step further and actually do something good. So when someone slanders you, it's not enough to just not slander them back. You are actually called by Jesus when you took his name to turn around and bless them. When you find out someone's been gossiping about you, it's not enough to just not gossip back. You find three or four other people and you go and do positive gossip and tell those people good things about the person who was gossiping about you. When someone, when your enemy is hungry, you feed them. Let's read the rest of this passage. I'm getting ahead of me. No, let's not read the rest of this passage just yet. Again, I want to just stop here for a moment here because I've got to tell you a couple stories here. Because some of you are going, again, Chris, there's no way, I, this cannot be done. People, my, I would lose my business. This doesn't work in the real world, okay? And here's what I want to say to you. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And see, there, I, don't know what someone, I don't know what people told you when you became a Christian. I don't know what they told you. And some people are basically told, becoming a Christian is just say a prayer, and the rest of your life is sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. That is a lie. If Jesus, Jesus had to die for our sins, did you know that there's an element that we need to suffer in order for the world to be saved? Not for their sins, but Jesus, di- Jesus died for our sins. We Christians don't die for unsaved people's sins. But when we suffer and bless those who curse us, in that suffering righteously, people see Jesus and want him. How else is the world going to be saved unless we suffer and bless? That's what attracts the world to Jesus. So when you became a Christian, you might have thought, I just got saved so I could go to heaven and I could get a bunch of blessings in this life. And what you didn't realize is whoever helped you get saved did you a disservice by not telling you what being saved really is. Being saved is becoming a Christian like Jesus. Pick up your cross and live as he did so that the rest of the world will see him in you because otherwise they'll go to hell. In one, let me tell you a couple of stories. In 168 AD, a guy by the name of Polycarp, he was a bishop in the early church. He was personally discipled by the Apostle John. He was 86 years old. He refu- had lived for Christ all of his life. At 86 years old, the Roman soldiers came uh, to burn him at the stake because he would not re- renounce Jesus. When the soldiers came, before they came, everybody knew they were coming. All of Polycarp's friends are saying, Polycarp, get out of town. Run, 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 run. I'm not running. They come to his door to burn him at the stake. You know what he does? He opens the door. There's a bunch of soldiers there. He invites them in and serves them the best supper they've ever had. Okay? True story. Serves them supper. At the end of supper, he says, can I pray for an hour? At this point, they're like, they have never seen. They've never arrested anyone like this before. So they allow him to to pray for an hour. They said during his prayer, many of the soldiers were already repenting. Okay? Then they bring him to the the Roman proconsul or whatever they called the guy's title. They bring him there and the guy says, Renounce Jesus or die. And Polycarp says, 86 years, he's, he has never let me down. I'm not going to deny him now. So they say, okay, then you're going to be burned at the stake. The soldiers kind of tie him up. He says, I won't resist you. He says, you don't need to tie me up. He just walks the stake. He says, light me on fire. He raises his hands to God, and that's how he dies. He burns. whole bunch of soldiers right there repenting. You know why they're repenting? whole bunch of people were saved from hell because this man was willing to die righteously. How many of us are willing to suffer righteously so that other people can escape hell? See, there's more to life than you getting all your money, than you building your business to the biggest it can possibly be. 
There is a world of people who need to see Jesus suffer in us. And we have a bigger calling. When you became a Christian, it wasn't say a prayer, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. It was signing up for this kind of life. To this you were called to suffer and repay no one evil for evil. I think of Dirk Wilhelms, one of the first Mennonites. God bless him. 1569. What was the name of his town? I always forget. Aspirin. Okay? Aspirin. (laughs) Interesting. Okay, anyway. In Holland. All right? He's arrested. They're going to burn him at the stake. He's in jail. He escapes one night. It's winter. Runs across the frozen river. The guards see him. They're chasing him down. As they chase him across the river, one of the guards falls through the ice and is dying. Dirk turns around and saves his pursuer. The rest of the guards promptly arrest him, bring him back, and they burn him at the stake. You go, what in the world? It's crazy. Yes, it's crazy. And to this day in Aspirin, they have monuments to this guy, streets named after him. Christian and non-Christian alike honor this man and they, because they see Jesus in him. Are we willing to lose money in order to suffer justly, to lose businesses, to lose positions, to be treated unfairly, Yes, it's going to make us uncomfortable. Yes, we're going to suffer loss. And Jesus' name is going to be glorified. You know, I just, one of my life goals is I just want to offend this mentality that we have in the Christian church. That it's, ask Jesus into my heart. After that, I can go through the Bible, pick and choose what I like. Whatever doesn't match up with human wisdom, I'm going to throw out because Jesus will just forgive it all anyway. No, 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 and no. When you got saved, when you asked Jesus into your heart, what you were doing was asking him to help you live the life. The prayer of salvation and the life of following Jesus go hand in hand. Yes, we fall short. None of us lives up to this standard. None of us even gets close. But if your mentality is, this is stupid, and I'm not going to do it. I don't care that Jesus did it. I don't care it's in the Bible. I don't care what prayer you prayed. You're not saved. Because you can't split up the prayer and the life. Becoming a follower of Jesus is becoming a person who will go through suffering because that is your calling. And you will suffer righteously. And you will not repay. And you will fall. But there's mercy and grace in that too. You say, so Jesus expects us to be defenseless in this world. No. It's not that we become defenseless. It is not that we become defenseless in this world. It's that we get a new kind of defense and defender. Let's go back. Let's finish the rest of that Romans verse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never. Why? But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a promise. If you will not avenge yourself, there's a promise. You may be going through a deep injustice right now in your life. Someone is treating you unjustly. If you will stop defending yourself, you need to circle this verse because God has promised he will repay. There will be justice. There will be justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are clear lines of responsibility. Every time you are treated unfairly or unjustly, there's two clear lines of responsibility. Your responsibility, feed your enemies, do good to them, love them. Not easy. It's simple though. It's simple. That's your job. Your job is not to worry about the justice side. What will happen to me in the end? Your job, bless those who curse you. And if you will do your responsibility, God also has a responsibility and he says, vengeance is mine. It's his job to bring justice to you and to avenge you. And he promises to do it. Now here's the problem. In our human nature, we're so weak. We we want to defend ourselves. So we cross up the lines. Here's the problem. When you defend yourself and you try to avenge yourself, you get in the way of God's judgment and you tie his hands and you thwart him working on your behalf. You thwart him working on on your behalf. And here's the thing. You want God working on your behalf. Here's the thing about God's judgment that's different than ours. When God judges people, it's just, it's righteous, and it's effective. When I judge people, when I avenge myself, everything I do will be sin. Every single thing I would do will be sin because God says vengeance is his. It belongs to him. So when I work on my own behalf to get vengeance, I sin. Not only do I sin, it's not effective. I don't get what I want. Have you ever noticed that? I remember, let me tell you a story from earlier in our marriage, an experiment I did. 
And I'll tell you this experiment because then you guys don't have to repeat it because it was stupid, okay? <laughs> Earlier in our marriage, I remember one time, Ladon said something to me. I don't even remember what it was. It was obviously harmless because I can't remember it, okay? But she said, and I was oversensitive in those days. I probably still am a little bit, okay? But anyway, working on it. Anyway, she said something to me, and I took offense at it. And inside, okay, and you're all going to be able to relate uh, to this, especially if you're married, guaranteed, okay? But she said something to me, and I took a little bit of offense at it, and I thought, you know what? She just does not appreciate me. And I'm going to treat her the way she treats me. And then she's going to come back and beg for the old Chris back, okay? That's what I thought. Not in so many words. It's a feeling. You guys are going, oh, you're so bad. If you're married longer than two hours, you have thought that. You haven't just thought it, you've acted on it, okay? So don't give me that. Anyway, um, so I thought, you know what? I'm going to, for the next couple of hours, I'm going to just, I'm going to be rude to her. I'm going to disrespect her. And then she's going to apologize for what she did because she's going to see how she's been treating me. Now, how many of you think an hour or two later she came bawling back to me and apologized? Again, no married person would raise their hands there because it doesn't work, okay? When I work, go to work on my own, on, on, to bring vengeance and justice on my own behalf, you know what happens? I don't soften the other person's heart. I harden it, don't I? An hour or two later, LaDon didn't feel like she loved me more, like she wanted to apologize and be better. She felt worse about me. Now, my problem is I was really stupid. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating anyway in this, in this story. I carried it on the rest of the day. I thought, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know what? She's a little tough, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work this in, okay? Day number two, I got more stubborn. I'm like, sheesh. This woman is not coming around. And there was palpable tension in the home. Like, palpable. No eye contact. No talking. Everything abrupt. <laughs> Thanks for the broccoli, honey. Turn and face the wall. Day number three, I thought, literally, when it got to day number three, day number three, I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. This little thing that was nothing, which I can't even remember anymore, has now mushroomed into a serious problem. My stomach is in knots. I'm so angry. And it was finally only on day three that I saw... I'm not making things better. I'm actually making things a lot worse. How many of you know that when you fight fire with fire, you don't get a smaller fire, you get a bigger fire? When you fight evil with evil, you get more evil. You cannot overcome evil with evil. And everything I did when I tried to get justice for myself, every single thing I did was sin, plus it didn't work. And finally, I just had to break my pride. I had to go to her. I had to apologize and within a day, we had sorted things out, and things were just great again, okay? But you cannot overcome evil with evil. Here's the thing about God, though. When you let Him work on your behalf, not only do you not sin, because all His judgment is just, but His justice works. You know, I remember another time, I'm just sharing some stories, and some of these I've shared before, but I remember another time I got, and, and that's because some of these, you know, some stories that we have from the church here just can't be shared. This one can be shared because the person doesn't come here and, and they are from another province. But I remember some years ago, a guy came to church here, never been here before, hasn't, I don't think, ever come back after. But like I said, he's from another province. Came here for one message and sends me a long email. I come into work on a Tuesday. I've got a long email in my inbox. I start reading it. And he's name-calling us. Uh, everything in the message was total garbage. I'm, we're leading people to hell, all this sort of thing. Crazy stuff. I'm reading this. As I read this email, I'm getting angrier and angrier. And I'm like, I'm going to defend myself. And I'm starting to think of all the scripture verses. I'm like, this guy doesn't know anything about his Bible. I know way more than him. And I'm starting to write this email. Oh, how about this verse and this verse? And I'm going to beat him in an argument. And I'm writing this whole letter, and I'm seething by the end of it. And I'm just about to hit send. And then the Holy Spirit, doesn't he always mess things up? <laughs> you just get this little nudge, don't send it. Oh, God, it'll be so therapeutic. I need to hit send right now. I have got to prove this guy wrong. Don't send it. Oh, I wish I hadn't stopped for a moment to listen to you, okay, and I delete the email. Oh, part of me died. Painful. I wrote one line in return. I said, I'm sorry that that's the impression you got of us, but I appreciate you taking the time to write. Sincerely, Chris. Send it off. Oh, the rest of the day, I'm like, Lord, he was wrong. I could have shown him he was wrong. Next day, I come into work. Another email in my inbox from this guy. Long email. I'm like, oh, great. Here we go again. I open it up. But this one is all an apology. The first page is like, apologizing over and over again profusely. Why did I write that? Shouldn't have wrote that. Your character. Oh, and then he's complimenting me. Oh, you've got such wonderful character and God's going to use you. And I'm going, what? Let me tell you what happened there. When you respond to cursing with blessing, you open up a person's conscience for the Holy Spirit to heap burning coals of fire on their head. That's what it says right here. Do you see that? For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
When you respond to cursing with blessing, you open up their conscience to a whole new world of pain and the Holy Spirit goes to work. And that's what happens. And you know, at the end of it, both of us feel good about each other. At the end of it, I sent another email back. We both felt good about it. If I would have argued back, you know what happens when you defend yourself? You harden them. Both sides get entrenched. Both sides are trying to win. It's hard to fight someone who doesn't fight back. And when you bless them, the Holy Spirit goes to work. And at the end of it, wow. Now some of you are sitting there and you're going, okay, well that's all fine when a person who took advantage of you has a conscience. Well, first of all, you'd be amazed how many people will have a conscience. When you bless those who curse, that is a very, very, very powerful weapon of conscience. And 9 out of 10 people in this world will feel the burning coals. But you're right that there are some people, there is that 1 out of 10 where they don't have a conscience. And you say, how is God going to protect me then? Well, here's the thing about God. He made the universe. He can do more than work on a person's conscience. In His mercy, He starts with the conscience. He wants them to repent and come and, and then come back, right? And do the right thing. But if they won't respond to the conscience, His job defending you isn't over because He said, I will repay and vengeance is mine. And there are more severe ways that He can use to defend you. And we've seen Him do that even in areas here at this church. And, but again, some of those stories aren't appropriate to share. Let me share with you a story from outside the church, okay? That God can use more severe methods on our behalf to defend us. A month ago, I was listening to a CD. I was driving into the city. I heard a great story. A speaker was telling a personal story about when he had become a, a pastor. He had become a youth pastor when he was younger. And he had gotten hired at a massive church in the States. A couple hundred staff. Huge church. And on a staff that big, he had a manager over him. There was, so there was a manager over his department, a few other departments. And so he started work as this youth pastor. And, and uh, for some reason, this manager uh, just disliked him. Just took a disliking to him. And began to overtly work to get him fired, and was telling the senior pastor blatant lies about the youth pastor. When the youth pastor found this out, he was horrified, he told his wife, and she's like, you got to defend yourself, you got to go to the pastor, and you have to tell him what this guy is doing. And so he started to gather up some documentation, and, uh, and he's praying about it, and he just doesn't have release. He doesn't have release. He's like, Lord, do you not want me to go to the senior pastor and defend myself? And God said, yes. Oh! My name's being ruined. This could hurt the ministry. Wasn't it your will for me to come here? And the Lord's like, not only do I not want you to defend yourself, I want you to go to the manager, and I want you to confess to him that you haven't respected him like you should, and I want you to tell him that you're going to work even harder for him. No, anything but that. <laughs> but he does it. He gets rid of the documentation. Not only does he not defend himself, he blesses those who are cursing him. Amen? Very difficult to do. Very painful. Because we want justice. He goes in there. He apologizes. I mean, this is heat burning coals. I mean, this, this can really hurt someone. This guy, unfortunately, didn't have a conscience. He apologized to him, kept working for him. This guy kept doing it worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And he was really working hard to get the youth pastor fired. Finally, the senior pastor calls for a meeting with the youth pastor, and the youth pastor thinks, this is it, I'm done. And so him and his wife, again, they gather up some documentation. They're like, well, at the very least, we have to show the senior pastor the truth. The day before the meeting, Youth pastor is praying. He gets a picture of God with his hands tied behind his back. God, why are your hands tied behind your back? I need you working. And God said, my hands are tied behind my back because you're working. And as long as you defend yourself, I will not defend you. I cannot. You're in the way. So he said, you want me to get rid of the documentation? Yes. In the shredder again. Goes to the meeting. Turns out the senior pastor doesn't fire him. He doesn't say a single word about the manager, doesn't complain about him, doesn't say anything. They just have this meeting. It's off. Him and his wife leave for the weekend. They had a previous engagement. Comes back the following week. The manager's office is cleared out. What happened here? Oh, you didn't hear? Here? While he was gone, God brought to light. This manager was doing a lot more than just lying about the youth pastor. He was embezzling funds and doing serious criminal activity. Very serious. And while the youth pastor was gone, God brought the whole thing to light without him having to do anything. Much worse than what he thought. It was much worse than just lying about him. And this guy got fired. Do you think God can't take care of his people? He can take care of you. What this essentially boils down to is trust. Do you trust God to take care of you? You want to know what the secret was? The secret why Jesus could face reviling and not revile back? 1 Peter 2.23, let's go back there. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. The key to Jesus, not having to revile back, not having to defend himself, was that he was trusting himself to God who judges justly. 
when Jesus faced false accusations, he was completely convinced, completely convinced that God was first of all in control, that God would do what was right, and that everything would work out for his benefit in the end even if not in this lifetime. He was completely convinced that God was in control. You know what? This is the root of many of our problems. The reason we fight back so hard is because we think it's out of control for God. We think we have to do it. God isn't watching. God hasn't noticed. God won't do anything. So we have to fight on our own behalf. Jesus entrusted himself. I want you to think about something here. The Jewish leaders are taking Jesus to a Roman court. Jesus does not entrust himself to the Roman legal system, which was the best in its day, the best in the ancient world. Did you know that Jesus had some powerful connections? If you read Luke chapter 8, verse 2, says that one of the women in Jesus' inner circle was a woman by the name of Joanna, who was the wife of, Herod, of King Herod's household manager. Jesus went and stood before King Herod. King Herod wanted to get him off the hook. All Jesus had to do was say, go get Joanna and her husband. They'll tell you that these things are lies. But he doesn't do that. He didn't trust himself to the legal system. He didn't trust himself to powerful connections. He did something very lonely and terrifying. He trusted himself not to other people, but to God and God alone. And in this culture, that is almost the scariest thing I think many of us could do. We are trained to believe the legal system will protect my rights. My wealthy connections will get me out of a scrape. My friends, public opinion, they'll help me get out of this. No, 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 and no. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We must do the lonely thing, the terrifying thing. We must put our trust in God and God alone. Brothers and sisters, God is our defender. Our example is Christ. Our calling is to suffer. And our tools of defense are prayer, trust, and obedience. Let me read you one final passage here. I'm going to skip that 1 Corinthians passage there, but lawsuits, Gary, we don't have time. Psalm 37, let me finish with this. Psalm 37. Verses 3 and 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's your job. That's my job. Trust in the Lord. Do good. That's it. That's what we do. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Commit your way to the Lord. Let go of your life. Say, Lord, they're taking advantage of me. If they don't pay me this bill, I'm going to lose my business. And God says, is the business mine or yours? If it's his then he has to protect it. If it's not his, then you don't need it. So let them take it. Do you see? This is actually freeing. Commit your way to the Lord. What is it that you're hanging on to that you can't trust him with? If it's his, he can defend it. He's very effective. Now watch this. Trust in him again, and he will act. You will not act. You will only trust and do good. Those will be your actions to feed your enemies, to give them a drink when they're thirsty. That's your actions. Trust and do good. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. This is a wonderful promise. I memorized this verse. That's a wonderful promise. Someone slanders you, you're losing your reputation. You want to, I have to stick up for myself. No. Let God bring forth your righteousness as the light and vindicate you before people. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you are our defender. Vengeance belongs to you. I pray two things here this morning, Jesus. First of all, I pray that it will get into our heads that our calling is to suffer as you suffered. May we not be caught unaware. May we not be caught surprised. I pray that as a church, we would be armed to suffer unjust treatment that we would be ready for it. And secondly, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the strength, the strength in the middle, in the heat of unjust treatment and battle, Lord, that we will repay no one evil for evil, but that we will bless those who curse. And Lord, many will come to know you as a result. We are called to lose things and to suffer pain so that many can see you in us. I pray, Lord, that we would catch that vision. And I pray that you would help us to live this out in Jesus' name. Amen.